start by a survey this morning and I need you to use your imagination to help me out with it. I want you to imagine that you have just walked through two very wide open doors and as you go through them they close behind you and you find yourself in an elevator about to ascend to the height of a very very tall building so you got a long ways to go. And everything is good until you realize you're not the only one in there. There's one more person in the elevator with you. And soon you have that awkward silence. You know what I'm talking about? Where it's you and them and this closed-in cube that you're going slowly up floor after floor. What is your go-to move in that awkward moment? So here's what you'll be choosing from. A, stare at your shoes. B, pull out your cell phone. C, make brief eye contact and then back to your shoes. D, initiate chit-chat. Okay, ready? So hand-raising time. Here we go. How many of you are going to stare at your shoes? <clears throat> it's okay to be honest. All right? By the way, I had a person after the first service come back, and it's like they had to tell me. They said, how do you know if... How it go? They said, how do you know an extroverted CPA? I said, I don't know. He'll stare at your shoes. Or whatever, I don't know. Or she will stare at your shoes, whatever. I don't get it. But anyway, all right. Uh, I get it. Don't tell me afterwards. B, all right, how many of you would put your cell phone out? Let me see your hands. Okay, good. C, how many of you would make eye contact quickly back, right? D, how many of you would initiate chit-chat? I don't believe any of you. Every service, this gets the most hand raised, and I think it's because you feel like it's what you have to say. Anyway, I'm just kidding. All right, you're special. The most often chosen is B. B, pull out the cell phone, which is kind of goofy because, you know, in an elevator, there's normally not much cell service, right? So it's kind of like our, you know, when somebody pulls a cell phone out, in essence, what they're saying is what? I don't want to talk to you. I don't have time for you. Uh, by the way, I have a real pet peeve. I didn't do this in any of the services. I feel free to do it here. You know the iWatch things that people have now? I don't have one, but you know what I'm talking about? And now your messages come up on it, your pictures, your texts. You know what I'm talking about? Don't you hate being at lunch with somebody or in a conversation and they're going like this all the time? What does that tell you? That whatever text they're getting or whatever thing is on there is more important than you. So I refuse to wear one, unless you buy me one. But anyway, uh, just kidding. <laughs> What's the whole point in all of this? The whole point in all of this is we want to be recognized. We want to be talked to. We want to feel like we matter. But the problem is we're afraid to talk to people we don't know. Why is it we're afraid to talk to people we don't know? Researchers tell us it is because we think they will find us boring. That we will not find them enjoyable 
They will not find us enjoyable, so we all kind of move to our corners. When the truth is, it's what we're longing for. We want a connection. We want a relationship. In fact, researchers have even gone further. One at the University of Chicago, um, Nicholas Epley, says that we now have proof that when we talk to somebody, even a stranger, it actually physically and emotionally makes us feel better. A whole article is written on it. Want to feel better? Talk to a stranger. That they can prove it. It actually lifts your mood. Even, listen, even if it's as subtle as smiling and nodding at someone and they acknowledge it and do it back to you, you both get a mood lift. So I thought we'd experiment with that here this morning because some of you may need a mood lift. So here's all I want you to do. You don't have to speak any words. Just look at someone next to you and just smile like this and nod. That's all you got to do. Try it. Smile and nod. In the balcony. You guys can do it too. Smile and nod. Now, let me ask you a question. How many feel better? I heard a lot of giggling. See, you feel better. So like all week long now, you guys are going to be on a high. All right? You're going to be, you're going to be junkies. You're going to get high all week long. All right? But just smiling and nodding. Maybe some of you should just try that at home. <laughs> smile and nod. Try not speaking to each other. Just smile and nod. Just smile and nod. See, what are, what are you going with all of this? Well, we're in the last message of our series, Missing. And we've been talking about the fact that there are a whole lot of people missing from God's family. And we get the privilege of going and telling them that he, missing, he misses them and bringing them back into relationship with him, just like we've come back into relationship with him as well. It's also known as evangelism. But oftentimes evangelism in our culture has kind of a negative stigma that's associated with it, which is a shame. But that's the privilege and the joy that we get to do. And so we've talked about, number one, how important it is for us to see people as missing from the family. So our attitude toward them is an attitude of treating them like their family. We said, ultimately, we are all family anyway. Trace all of our uh, genes back, we end up with the same parents, Adam and Eve. So those cute little children that were uh, dedicated today, literally, they are part of your family. So when you're asked to pray for them, support them, get it. They're part of your family. Secondly, we said God can use anybody to bring people back to himself. You don't have to have a theological degree. And you certainly don't have to have a salesperson's personality. God wants to use us in our ordinariness to be his witnesses. Well, what I want to do is I want to remind you that we have a great strategy to help you do that. We've been talking about it over and over again. We've been talking about these cards. You know, picked one up. They're available at door one or door two. It's called our Adopt 7 Strategy. And on the back, there are seven slots, you can add more, of people in your life who may not know Jesus yet. You may not even know their names, but they are people that are in your life. You have fairly regular contact with them, whether it's the barista who waits on you at your favorite coffee shop, or it's the person who works next to you, or a neighbor. It's someone in your life that you see regularly. All we ask you to do is put their name down, or what they do, because you may not know their name yet. There are three things we ask you to do for them. One is pray, 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 pray. Two is serve, serve, serve. 
And three, when the time is right, share Jesus with them. When the time is right, when, when they are asking you about what makes you so unique, what's so different about you, you tell them about Jesus. And if God opens the door, you share with them the gospel. If you're not sure what the gospel is, we have a class coming up on October the 27th here during the Sunday morning uh, hour. You can go to our website to sign up for it. Just go to our website, scroll down the pathway, click on pathway. It'll take you to a site where then you click on share October 27th for 45 minutes. Simple lesson. Here's what the gospel is. You're always equipped to share it. Hope you take advantage of it. But this last message, I just want to explore a couple of more things with you when it comes to sharing Jesus with others. I want to talk a little bit about the fears that we have and how to overcome those fears when it comes to reaching out to people and sharing Christ with them. Now, the way you combat fear is with truth, and that's what we're going to do. So here's the first fear a lot of people struggle with, and that is they fear how people are going to respond to them. We fear how people respond to me if I start talking to them about God. The way you overcome that fear is to understand we're not trying to get them to respond to us. We're trying to get them to respond to God. Second way you overcome that fear is don't look at people like a project. Don't look at people like they need to be fixed. How many of you like it when somebody tries to fix you? How many of you are married? Do you like it when your spouse tries to fix you? How many of you say no? Let me hear. How many of you enjoy it? Be careful. All right. We don't like it when people try to fix us. So don't do that to other people. Our job isn't to go out and fix them. Our job is to introduce them to Jesus. Number two, we fear failure. Nobody likes to fail. And so we feel like, well, if, you know, if I don't lead them to faith, I have failed. It's not about failure. It's about being faithful. Years ago, when Marsh and I were headed to California, where we were going to pastor a church out there, I remember on the way, I suddenly had a panic attack. And my panic attack was, what if I fail? What if I fail as a pastor? What if I fail as a teacher, a communicator? What if we fail to mix into this very cosmopolitan population in the San Francisco Bay Area? And I was petrified. I was seized by it. Until God broke through and God spoke to me and God said to me, and I remember hearing it clear as can be in my mind, so what if you fail, just be faithful. And it was, it was just automatic release for me. Just be faithful. All God wants you to do is to be faithful. Number three, fear. Having people see through me. In other words, having people become aware of, you know, how human ordinary I am and my my, my issues, my, my challenges. Last weekend we said one of the problems we have in our society is we are so fake in our society. We're always putting up a front because we, we, don't, we want to be accepted. And so we, we're like actors. What do I have to do to be accepted? Our students experience that. We experience that. And I said it's a terrible thing what happens in church. But we do it at church too. We come to church and we all act like we're holy and spiritual. When the reality is we are sinners saved by grace who are in the process of being changed. So it's okay to let people see through you. It's okay for them to see that you aren't perfect because you aren't perfect. People aren't drawn to people who appear to have it all together. We're afraid of that, okay? That intimidates us. They feel more comfortable when we're more like them. Number four, fear. Not having the right answers. Not having the right answers. So what? You don't have to have the right answers. If you're in a conversation with somebody and it's a spiritual issue and you've built up a relationship with them, it's going to be okay. It's going to be comfortable for you. 
When they say, when they ask you a question you can't answer, you've already got the relationship. You just say to them, man, that was an awesome question, Paul. I, you know, I have wrestled with that a few times. I just haven't given a lot of thought to it. And rather than me give you an answer off the top of my head, uh, let me have some time to think about this. They're going to respect that. And there's so many ways for you to get good answers. Through the internet, uh, call the pastoral staff, email us, we'll help you with that. You got a relationship going with them, they'll respect that. And then you get back together again in a week or two and you say, now here's what I learned about that, about that question you asked. And here's some thoughts about it. Number five, here's a fear of having character flaws. It's just like this one, seeing through me. It's okay to admit you have character flaws. But see, here's the key. It's one thing to admit it. It's another thing to say, yeah, I've got some of these issues in my life, but God's changing me. God is changing me. We'll talk more about that in just a little bit. Number six, fear doing something we're not gifted at doing. Doing something we're not gifted at doing. I want to say to you that all God wants you to be is who he's made you to be. God can use you with whatever shape you have, whatever your spiritual background, whatever your passion, whatever your ability, whatever your spiritual gift, whatever your personality, whatever your experience, God wants to use that. You're unique. Just let him use that. You don't have to have a certain gift for God to use you. Number seven, fear being embarrassed. I might get embarrassed if I start talking to him about God. The only time we're embarrassed is when we're making it about us and not about God. And it's not about you. It's about God. The other times that we get embarrassed is when we're operating outside of our temperament. When we're trying to be someone we're not. Like when we're trying to be really intellectual and logical. Like we're trying to be a, a Ravi Zacharias or a, a Sean or Josh McDowell or a Craig Lane. These are all intellectual Christians who, you know, write great books and know all the arguments. If that's not who you are, don't be that. That's what will get you into trouble. Just be who you are. Trust in the Holy Spirit, not in your own intelligence, not in your own arguments. Because you can't argue somebody in the kingdom of heaven. You can't force somebody in the kingdom of heaven. Right? You can't do, you know, hold their arm behind their back, mentally speaking. The Spirit has to do that in their life. Number eight, fear getting tongue-tied and saying the wrong things. You probably will. So what? So what? I love it. Matthew 10, 19, Jesus said, you know, you guys are going to be arrested to his disciples. You're going to appear before judges and kings and courts. Don't worry what you're going to say. I'll give you the words to say. Trust me. And that's what we need to do as well. Number nine, Getting corrupted by hanging out with unbelievers. Getting corrupted by hanging out with unbelievers. Boy, Jesus hung out with a lot of unbelievers, didn't he? And he wants you to hang out with them too. He said, well, I, I don't, I'm worried I might get corrupted by that. Three ways to keep from being corrupted. Number one, hang out with God a lot. Number two, hang out with strong, healthy believers a lot. And that makes you are hanging out with unbelievers. Hang out with all three. You don't have to worry about it. You don't have to worry about it. See, well, let me ask you this question. If you had to choose one, obviously don't answer this out loud, all right? Which is your greatest fear of the list I just gave you? What's your greatest fear? Or if maybe there's one I didn't put on there. What is it that, that, that gives you the most fear? I want to suggest to you that I think what might drive a lot of our fears is the, the paradigm of evangelism or witnessing that we may have been exposed to, taught, or grown up with. And maybe what we need to do is change that, that paradigm. 
Let me give you an example of, of what I mean by that. When I was uh, younger and started ministry, the way I was taught evangelism, the paradigm that was given to me was that you arm yourself with a great outline, a survey, and you go door-to-door cold calling, which does not fit my temperament whatsoever. But back in those days, it was like guilt evangelism. So I got my training, I rehearsed it, I put my suit coat on and my tie, it was a different era, all right? Put my name tag in the church I was from, I remember it so clearly in Ohio. And then if it was cold out, I'd put my overcoat and I would be like the lone ranger, like nobody wanted to go with me. So I would go out, and I understand why they didn't want to go with me. I'd go out and I'd knock on doors. And people would answer the door if, and I would have this little survey because that's what we were taught to do. And I would say, I have five questions I'd like to ask you because I'm trying to determine people's religious thinking. Could I ask you these questions? That was the first question. Yeah, go ahead. Well, my first question is, do you, uh, are you religious at all? Listen to what they say. Secondly, do you, do you attend a church at all? Then you'd come at them with the next question. And the next question was, if you were to die tonight, are you for certain that you would go to heaven? That's a really tough question on a first date. That kind of throws people back because they probably haven't been thinking about dying, right? And so if you can get past that question, they haven't slammed the door in your face, then you ask them because, you don't, you know, they may say, well, I'm not sure. Then you say to them, well, let's imagine you did die today and stood before God. What do you think he would say is the reason he should let you into heaven? I hated doing that. I rarely got into somebody's home after those questions. And uh, imagine me trying to train a whole bunch of other people to do that with me just did not work for me. It was uncomfortable. It was way out of my comfort zone. So if that's been your mindset of what it means to witness, I can understand why you got a lot of fear. I don't even think Jesus would be comfortable with that strategy if that's how training was taking place. You say, well, what paradigm should we use? Well, I want to suggest to you a little bit of a different paradigm. A couple of months ago, I got a phone call from a friend of mine from years ago uh, when we met each other in California. And he said, he said Let, you know, let's go fishing. He's been asking me to do this for, for the last several years, and it never works out. And I had a birthday coming up, and Marcia said, you never go, you should go. And so I decided I would. It was this past week. So I met him out in Idaho. I flew out to Idaho, northern Idaho, beautiful country. And he said, you get out here, and we'll take care of the rest. And he said, I want to introduce you to a friend of mine who's probably one of the best freshwater fishermen I've ever met. This guy can catch fish in any freshwater that you could imagine. He's got the boat, he's got the reels, he's got the lures, he knows how to read the water, read the fish, blah, blah. You got to meet him. So I thought, okay. So I met my friend who then introduced me to his friend who I kind of knew from a distance, didn't know him well. And so we all three got in the boat and we slammed fish for two days. We just caught our limit every day. And then some and gave the sum away and had a great time. And as I met this guy, I realized this guy knows how to fish. He had all the equipment. He had the right boat. I mean, we were catching fish when other people were not. We'd go in and get some fish away in town, small little town. And they'd look at us like, where did you get this fish? We said, oh, we caught our limit. And they would be like, you're kidding me. Nobody catches their limit out there. Well, we caught our limit. They were amazed. I thought, man, this is a really good guy to know. So now he's my good friend too. Because <laughs> I want to go fishing in Idaho again. I had a great time. 
That's evangelism. You say, what do you mean that's evangelism? Evangelism is saying, hey, I got this really awesome friend I'd love for you to meet. I love hanging out with him. He brings joy in my life. He brings hope to me, encouragement to me. It's the best person and the best thing that's ever happened to me. Why don't you hop in my boat? Let me introduce you to him. And maybe the two of you guys will become best friends. That's evangelism. How hard is that? If you are convinced that Jesus is your best friend, if you know him personally and you love him and he's changing your life and he's awesome to be with, why wouldn't you tell someone about it, right? If you really believe that. So I sometimes wonder if our problem with evangelism is we're not enthused about who Jesus is. He doesn't really mean that much to us. We don't really consider him to be our best friend. Our lives haven't really changed that much because of him. Then I wonder, do I really even know who Jesus is? But if he is all that he says he is, oh my goodness, why would we keep that secret to ourselves? Why would we keep that secret to ourselves? And we're not talking about broadsiding people with this. I'm not saying leave the service, go find a stranger, and write and say, you got to meet my best friend. Oh, that's probably better than saying nothing at all. Remember Adopt 7? We're talking about being ready to do that as you form this relationship with people. Because as you befriend people, they're actually starting to experience Jesus' presence already. Because where does the Spirit of God dwell? Romans 8, 11, we talked about last weekend. He dwells in me, right? He already dwells in me. They say leadership is all about influence. So is evangelism. So is witnessing for Christ. And I want you to look at three models quickly of influence in the scriptures that God gives us with unbelievers. So Matthew chapter 5, if you want to turn there with me in your Bibles, Matthew chapter 5. That way you can meditate on these words later on. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 13. Jesus says, you, talking to us now, you are the salt of the earth. But what good is salt if it has lost its flavor? Can you make it salty again? It will be thrown out and trampled underfoot as worthless. So the metaphor we want to look at is salt, Matthew 5, 13. How is salt influential? Well, there are a couple of different ways. Says Mike Bechtel, who wrote a book called Evangelism for the Rest of Us. If, I, if I'm going to eat something, I don't go out and just buy a block of salt and lay it on my plate, right? I take the salt shaker and I take those tiny little pieces of salt and I shake them out. Well, we influence people tiny pieces at a time, just like the salt. Over time, a little here and a little there and a little more here and a little more there, we subtly, softly, gently influence people for Christ. We don't just run right up and drop the whole block on them. Secondly, salt adds flavor. How many of you use salt on your food, right? I mean, what, is, what are french fries without salt, right? Salt makes them taste good. So salt adds flavor. You and I bring flavor into people's lives. And when we bring Jesus into a conversation, it adds great flavor. When we bring Jesus into a friendship, it adds great flavor. When we bring Jesus to work, it brings great flavor. Because have you ever heard of the fruit of the Spirit? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. How many of you would love to be married to somebody like that who is that way all the time? 
How many of you like to have a friend like that? How many of you like to have a boss like that? How many of you like to have parents like that? Have kids like that all the time? That's heaven, right? <laughs> and we're supposed to be a little bit of taste of heaven on earth. As it is in heaven, so on earth. So I, you and I, we get to bring that flavor. And I'm telling you, if we consistently bring that flavor, people are attracted to the, to the flavor in us. The third thing that salt does is it preserves. In the ancient days, they used salt to preserve meat, like fish. Well, our analogy for that is truth. Truth that preserves. We live in a culture and a society right now that is desperate for truth. And there's all kinds of truth that's being offered right now. There's all kinds of different forms of morality that's being called truth, politi- uh, uh, politics that's called truth, political views called truth, economic uh, uh, views that are called truth. I mean, it's, it, there's just all this truth out there swimming. And you can just buy into what truth works for you. Well, the problem with all of that is pretty soon people discover, hey, this isn't really true. It's not changing my life. In fact, my life's worse instead of better because I bought into this. And at that point, people start looking around and saying, is there anything I can look at that's been consistent enough that I know whether I like it or not, I know it's truth because it's held up. And the answer to that question is only one thing that will do that, and it is the Word of God. And you and I, we are the Word of God. Because His Word indwells us, the living Word, and as we live out this Word. So it's so important for us in our society right now that we consistently live by the truth. But when the church compromises the truth, when we try to play games with the culture, when we want to fit in and so we, we change the word to kind of accommodate the culture, what happens is that when it all becomes a big stench, when that truth doesn't work anymore, they look at the church and they go, you guys are just as much a liar as anybody else. You bought into the same thing. Where's the difference? That's why Jesus said, you know, when salt loses its flavor, it's worthless. Just throw it out. What use is it? So, man, we've, we've really got to make sure we're being influential for Christ. Amen? Secondly, second metaphor he gives us is light. Matthew 5, just a few more verses, 14 and 16. He says, you are the light of the world like a city on a hilltop that cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and then puts it under a basket. Instead, a lamp is placed on a stand where it gives light into everyone in the house. In the same way, let your good deeds shine out for all to see so that everyone will praise your heavenly Father. Love those verses. How is light influential? Three ways, just like salt. Number one, light comes from a source. The light, the sun, the sunlight comes from the sun. It's the source. So when we radiate out, we're being asked to radiate out the presence of God. We're talking about radiating out God's presence, not our own goodness. In order to radiate out God's presence, I've got to die to myself and give place to Jesus. And that's why Paul says, I die daily. Man, every day I've got to die to myself. It's not about me, it's about him. I want to get out of the way so I can experience his presence. I was thinking about Ephesians 5.18. It says, and be not drunk with wine where is in excess, but be filled with the Spirit. Paul's not saying he's against wine. He's just saying don't, what he's against is drunkenness, letting it take over your mind and your feelings and your ideas. He said said the only time you should be drunk is is in the spirit. 
Let the Spirit take over your mind, your feeling, and your ideas. Live in that state of intoxication. Let that radiate out of you. The other thing that light does, light shines on objects or on people. When we let our light shine, we don't shine it on ourselves, we don't shine it on our goodness, we don't shine it on our success or even on our church. Our light shines on Jesus. We're always pointed to Jesus. He's the reason for what's happening, the good things that are happening in my life. Thirdly, when is light most noticeable? When do you notice light the most? When it's really dark. Shut all the lights out in a room and turn on just a tiny little pen light. Man, you can see it because it's so dark. You know, there's a lot of darkness in our society right now. There's a lot of darkness in our world. There really is. And while it feels like bad news and we kind of grimace about it, on the other hand, it's a huge opportunity to shine brighter for Christ. And let people see him in us and be attracted to that light. Third way that we can influence others is through change. So turn over to Philippians chapter 3 and look at a couple of verses here with me. Philippians chapter 3, verse 12. Paul's giving a little bit of a testimony. He's toward the end of his life. And uh, he's writing the church of Philippi. And he says in verse 12, I don't mean to say that I have already achieved these things or that I have already reached perfection. But I press on to possess that perfection for which Christ Jesus first possessed me. No, dear brothers and sisters, I have not achieved it. But I focus on this one thing, forgetting the past and looking forward to what, is, to what lies ahead. I press on to reach the end of the race and receive the heavenly prize which God through Christ Jesus is calling us. Do you know what Paul's saying there? He's saying, I'm not perfect yet. I'm still maturing. I'm still growing. And I won't arrive until I do arrive. It's kind of nice to hear Paul say that he wasn't perfect, isn't it? And it's kind of nice when people look at our lives and realize that we're not perfect and we know we're not perfect, but they see us changing. They see us growing in our marriage or in our parenting or in our friendships or at work in our attitudes. Some of the, some of the best times I've had is, is when I've had to go to people on staff or in other situations and say, I'm sorry I was wrong. Because it says to them, he, he recognizes he's not perfect. And he can admit it. And God is doing something in his life. So those moments of change, of spiritual growth, are so impactful in people's lives. It's okay to be honest about that. It's okay to admit that. And let people see it in us. And let people see it through us. It's, not, it's just not that hard. Everything we've been talking about is not that hard. I'm not asking you to go out and knock on strangers' doors. I'm not asking you to go out with a theological degree and present a 10-point outline. I'm just asking us and myself to just be us, but be more conscious of the people who are around us and form those relationships with them. And it just starts by prayer. And it starts literally with a nod and a smile. And you build that relationship till the opportunity comes and they say, tell me, why, why are you so different? And we say, well, hop in the boat. I want to introduce you to my best friend. 
So Saturday morning, I was wrapping up. I was memorizing yesterday my message, and I go to a, a, a coffee shop quite a ways away from here just to kind of get my mind in a different place. And, and uh, I, part of my adopt, however many there are in my life, 30 or more, are the baristas there. And I always go in there and I say prayers for them. And it was toward the end of my time there. It was just me, and there was one guy working behind the machine. And I was thinking about a friend of mine who I led to faith and who's gone home to be with Jesus several years ago. His name is Jack. And Jack uh, could hardly read or write. He's very simple, ordinary. But he had an extraordinary way of connecting with people because he was always sincere. And you knew Jack literally would give you the shirt off his back. He would do that for you. And Jack had a habit, no matter where we went, he would always look at people and he would say to them with a smile on his face, have a wonderful day. He'd look at you and go, have a wonderful day. And you knew he meant it. And it made you feel good because you knew he meant it. And you knew if there was something he could do to help you have a wonderful day, he would do it. And I was just thinking that and I was savoring that. And I thought, you know, Jack understood evangelism. And then God kind of ambushed me and said, hey, when you leave, I want you to look at the guy behind the machine and say to him, have a wonderful day and mean it. And I started to argue with that voice in me. Have you ever done that? I'm not going to do that. That's just not who I am. And you're going to tell everybody else to do it tomorrow? Tell him and mean it. Have a wonderful day. And I'm like, I can't do that. I'm just, ah, okay, I'll do it. All right? But then it's like I had to make sure I did it the right way. So I got my backpack up. I got ready to leave. I turned around. He's busy doing something. And I said, hey, have a wonderful day. And I said it like that. I, just, I really meant it. Have a wonderful day. It's like he dropped everything behind the machine. And he looked up at me. And he, he's like, thank you. You have a wonderful day. <laughs> and we both felt great. Because we acknowledge each other. And now I get to build on that in my relationship with him. Have a wonderful day. Let's pray. Father God, being your witness is not so hard. Forgive us when we make it so hard. Just help us, Lord, to be genuine lovers of people because you love people. Help us just to be ourselves, but to be ourselves in the presence of Christ and to care for people, Lord. Father, whether they ever turn to you or not, help us to love people unconditionally, I pray. And use us in Jesus' name. Amen.